0: The Relation of the Law to the Mission and Work of Christ by Patrick Fairbairn. Lecture 7 of The Revelation of Law in Scripture, considered with respect both to its own nature and to its relative place in successive dispensations. Lecture 7. The Relation of the Law to the Mission and Work of Christ the symbolical and ritual finding in him its termination, and the moral its formal appropriation and perfect fulfillment. As the appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ for the work of our redemption was unspeakably the greatest era in the history of God's dispensations toward men, we cannot doubt that everything respecting it was arranged with infinite wisdom, It took place, as the Apostle tells us, in the fullness of the time, Galatians 4.4. Many circumstances, both in the church and in the world, conspired to render it such. And among these may undoubtedly be placed the fact that there was not only a general expectation throughout the world of someone going to arise in Judea who should greatly change and renovate the state of things, But in Judea itself, the more certain hope and longing desire of a select few, who, taught by the word of prophecy, were anxiously waiting for the consolation of Israel. Yet, even with them, as may be reasonably inferred from what afterwards transpired in gospel history, the expectation, however sincere and earnest, was greatly wanting in discernment it might justly be said to see through a glass darkly. The great problem which, according to Old Testament Scripture, had to find its solution in the brighter future of God's kingdom, was not distinctly apprehended by any known section of the covenant people. And in all the more prominent and active members of the community, there were strong currents of opinion and deeply cherished convictions— which were utterly incompatible with the proper realization of the divine plan. This condition of affairs immensely aggravated the difficulty of the undertaking for him, who came in this peculiar work to do the Father's will. But it served, at the same time, more clearly to show how entirely all was of God, both the insight to understand what was needed to be done and the wisdom, the resolution, the power to carry it into execution. If, however, from the position of matters now noticed, it was necessary that our Lord should move in perfect independence as regards the religious parties of the time, it was not less necessary that he should exercise a close dependence on the religion which they professed in common to maintain. Coming as the Messiah promised to the fathers, he entered, as a matter of course, into the heritage of all preceding revelations, and therefore could introduce nothing absolutely new, could only exhibit the proper growth and development of the old. And so, while isolating himself from the Judaism of the scribes and Pharisees, Jesus lovingly embraced the Judaism of the Law and the Prophets, and, founding upon what had been already established, took it for his especial calling to unfold the germs of holy principle, which were contained in the past revelations of God, and by word and deed ripened them into a system of truth and duty adapted to the mature stage which had now been reached of the divine dispensations. It was only in part, indeed, that this could be done during the personal ministry of our Lord. For, as the light he was to introduce depended to a large extent on the work he had to accomplish for men, there were many things respecting it which could not be fully disclosed till the events of his marvelous history had run their course." It was the redeeming work of Christ which, more than all besides, was to give its tone and impress to the new dispensation. And much of the teaching on men's relations to God, on their present calling and their future prospects as believers in Christ, had in consequence to be deferred till the work itself was finished. This our Lord himself plainly intimated to his disciples, near the close of his career, when pointing to certain things of which they could not even then bear the disclosure, but which the Spirit of Truth would reveal to them after his departure and qualify them for communicating to others. Yet not only were the materials for all provided by Christ in his earthly ministry, but the way also was begun to be opened for their proper application and use. And what was afterwards done in this respect by the hands of the apostles was merely the continuation and further unfolding of the line of instruction already commenced by their divine master. First, now of one thing our Lord's ministry left no room to doubt, and it is the more noticeable, as in this he differed from all around him, he made a marked distinction between the symbolical or ritual things of the Old Covenant and its strictly moral precepts. He regarded the former, as the legal economy itself did, in the light merely of appendages to the moral, temporary expedients, or provisional substitutes for better things to come, which had no inherent value in themselves and were to give way before the great realities they foreshadowed. Hence the reserve he manifested in regard to external rites and ceremonies. We read of no act of bodily lustration in his public history. He expressly repudiated the idea of washing, having in itself any power to cleanse from spiritual defilement, or of true purification at all, depending on the kind of food that might be partaken of. He was the true, the ideal Nazarite, yet undertook no Nazarene vow. Though combining in himself all the functions of prophet, priest, and king, yet he entered on them by no outward anointing. He had the real consecrating of the Holy Spirit, visibly descending and abiding with him. And though he did not abstain from the stated feasts of the temple, when it was safe and practicable for him to be present, yet we hear of no special offerings for himself or his disciples on such occasions. Even as regards the ordinary services and offerings of the temple, he claimed a rightful exemption, on the ground of his essentially divine standing from the tribute money, the half-shekel contribution by which they were maintained. He was himself, as the son of the highest, the lord of that temple. It was the material symbol of what he is in his relation to his people. And on the occasion of his first public visit to its courts, he vindicated his right to order its affairs by casting out the buyers and sellers, yea, and... Identifying himself with it, he declared that when he fell as the Redeemer of the world, it too should virtually fall. The great inhabitant should be gone, and henceforth no more in one place than another, but in every place where the children of faith might meet together, there should true worship and acceptable service be presented to God." Utterances like these plainly rung the knell of the old ceremonialism. They bespoke a speedy removing of the external fabric of Judaism, yet such a removing as would leave greatly more than it took, instead of the imperfect and temporary shadow, the eternal substance. And if one might still speak, in the hallowed language of the sanctuary, of a temple, and a sacrifice, and a daily ministration of a sanctity to be preserved and a pollution to be shunned, it must be as bound to no specific localities or stereotyped forms, but as connected with the proper freedom and enlargement of God's true children. Second, turning now to the moral part of the Old Testament legislation, to the law, strictly so called, we find our Lord acting in a quite different manner, showing the utmost solicitude to preserve intact the revelation at Sinai, and to have it made, through his teaching, both better understood and with fresh sanctions enforced as the essential rule of righteousness in God's kingdom, nay, himself submitting to bow down to it as the yoke which, in his great work of obedience, he was to bear, and by bearing to glorify God and redeem man. Let us look at it first in more immediate connection with the teaching of Christ. There was undoubtedly a difference, a difference of a quite perceptible kind, and one that will not be overlooked by those who would deal wisely with the records of God's dispensations, in respect to the place occupied by law in the economies headed respectively by Moses and Christ. It was in his memorable Sermon on the Mount that our Lord made the chief formal promulgation of the fundamental principles of his kingdom, which, therefore, stood to the coming dispensation in somewhat of the same relation that the imposing promulgation of law from Sinai did to the ancient theocracy. And, as if on purpose to link the two more distinctly and closely together, he makes to that earlier revelation very frequent and pointed reference in his discourse. But how strikingly different in mode and circumstance the one revelation from the other! The two dispensations have their distinctive characteristics imaged in the two historical occasions. Exhibiting even to the outward eye the contrast expressed by the evangelist John, when he said, The law was given by Moses, grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. What a difference in the external scenery alone in the two mounts! Sinai is less properly a mountain, in the ordinary sense of the term, than a lofty and precipitous rock in the midst of a wilderness of rocks of similar aspect and formation, combining, in a degree rarely equaled, the two features of grandeur and desolation. The Alps unclothed, as they have been significantly called, the Alps stripped of all verdure and vegetation, and cleft on every side into such deep hollows, or rising into such rugged eminences as render them alike of solid mien and of difficult access. There, amid the sterner scenery of nature, intensified by the supernatural elements brought into play for the occasion, the Lord descended as in a chariot of fire, and proclaimed with a voice of thunder those ten words which were to form the basis of Israel's religion and polity. It was amid quite other scenes and aspects of nature that the incarnate Redeemer met the assembled multitudes of Galilee, when he proceeded to disclose in their hearing the fundamental principles of the new and higher constitution he came to introduce. The exact locality in this case cannot indeed be determined with infallible certainty, though there is no reason to doubt its connection with the elevated tableland, rising prominently into view a few miles to the south of Capernaum, and jutting up into two little points called the Horns of Hattin, to which tradition has assigned the name of the Mount of Beatitudes. This elevated plain, we are informed, is easily accessible from the Galilean lake, and from that plain to the summit, or points just mentioned, is but a few minutes' walk. Its situation also is central both to the peasants of the Galilean hills and the fishermen of the lake between which it stands, and would therefore be a natural resort to Jesus and his disciples when they retired for solitude from the shores of the sea. The prospect from the summit is described even now as pleasing, though rank weeds are growing around, and only occasional patches of corn meet the eye. But how much more must it have been so then, when Galilee was a well-cultivated and fertile region, and the rich fields which sloped downwards to the lake were seen waving with their summer produce. It was on such an eminence, embosomed in so fair and pleasing an amphitheater, and as the multitudes assembled on the occasion seemed to betoken, under a bright sky and a serene atmosphere, that the blessed Redeemer chose to give forth this fresh utterance of heaven's mind and will, and himself the while, not wrapped in thick darkness, not even assuming an attitude of imposing grandeur, but fresh from the benign work of healing, and seated in humble guise as a man among his fellow men, at the most as a teacher in the midst of his listening disciples. So did the Son of Man open his mouth and make known the things which concern his kingdom. What striking and appropriate indications of divine grace and condescension! How well fitted to inspire confidence and hope! As compared with the scenes and transactions associated with the giving of the law from Sinai, it bespoke such an advance in the march of God's dispensations, as is seen in the field of nature when it can be said, "'The winter is past, the rain is over and gone,' The flowers appear on the earth, the time of the singing of birds is come, and the voice of the turtle is heard in our land. The discourse which our Lord delivered on the occasion entirely corresponds with the new era which it marked in the history of God's dispensations. The revelation from Sinai, though grafted on a covenant of grace, and uttered by God as the Redeemer of Israel, Was emphatically a promulgation of law. Its direct and formal object was to raise aloft the claims of the divine righteousness and meet with repressive and determined energy the corrupt tendencies of human nature. The Sermon on the Mount, on the other hand, begins with blessing. It opens with a whole series of beatitudes. Blessing after blessing pouring itself forth as from a full spring of beneficence and seeking, with its varied and copious manifestations of goodness, to leave nothing unprovided for in the deep wants and longing desires of men. Yet here also, as in other things, the difference between the new and the old is relative only, not absolute. There are the same fundamental elements in both— but these differently adjusted, so as fitly to adapt them to the ends they had to serve and the times to which they respectively belonged. In the revelation of law, there was a substratum of grace, recognized in the words which prefaced the Ten Commandments, and promises of grace and blessing also intermingling with the stern prohibitions and injunctions of which they consist. And so, inversely, in the Sermon on the Mount, while it gives grace the priority and the prominence, it is far from excluding the severer aspect of God's character and government. No sooner indeed has grace poured itself forth in a succession of beatitudes than there appear the stern demands of righteousness and law, the very law proclaimed from Sinai. And that law so explained and enforced as to bring fully under its sway the intents of the heart, as well as the actions of the life, and by men's relation to it, determining their place and destinies in the Messiah's kingdom. Here, then, we have our Lord's own testimony regarding his relation to the law of God. His first and most comprehensive declaration upon the subject— the one which may be said to rule all the others, is the utterance on the mount, Think not that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I came not to destroy, katalusai, to dissolve, abrogate, make void, but to fulfill, plerosai. This latter expression must be taken in its plain and natural sense. Therefore, not as some would understand it, to confirm or ratify, which is not the import of the Word, and also what the Law and the Prophets did not require. God's Word needs no ratification. Nor, as others, to fill up and complete their teaching, for this were no proper contrast to the destroying or making void. No, it means simply to substantiate, by doing what they required, or making good what they announced. To fulfill a law, plerun nomon, was a quite common expression in profane as well as sacred writings, and only in the sense now given. So we find Augustine confidently urging it against the Manichaean perverters of the truth in his day, The law, says he, is fulfilled when the things are done which are commanded. Christ came not to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. Not that things might be added to the law which were wanting, but that the things written in it might be done, which his own words confirm. For he does not say, One jot or one tittle shall not pass from the law till the things wanting are added to it, but till all be done." and uttered as the declaration was when men's minds were fermenting with all manner of opinions respecting the intentions of Jesus, it was plainly meant to assure them that he stood in a friendly relation to the law and the prophets, and could no more in his teaching than in his working do what would be subversive of their design. They must find in him only their fulfillment." To render his meaning still more explicit, our Lord gives it the advantage of two specific illustrations, one hypothetical, the other actual. Should anyone, therefore, he says in verse 19, annul, not break, as in the English version, but put away, abrogate, annul, luce, one of these commandments, the least of them, and teach men so, He shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. Such is the exact rendering, and it very expressly asserts the validity of what was found in preceding revelations, down even to their least commands in the kingdom presently to be set up. There was to be no antagonism between the new and the old. So far from it, that any one who had failed to discern and appreciate the righteousness embodied in the smaller things of the law, and on that account would have set them aside, for so plainly must the words be understood, he should exhibit such a want of accordance with the spirit of the new economy, he should so imperfectly understand and sympathize with its claims of righteousness, that he might lay his account to be all but excluded from a place in the kingdom. But it was quite conceivable that one might, in a certain sense, not accept, even to the least, and yet be so defective in the qualities of true righteousness, as to stand in an altogether false position toward the greater and more important. There were well-known parties in such a position at that particular time, and by a reference to what actually existed among them, our Lord furnishes another, and to his audience, doubtless, a more startling illustration. For I say unto you, he adds, that except your righteousness should exceed, perisuse, go beyond, overpass, that of the scribes and Pharisees, Ye shall in no wise enter into the kingdom of heaven. The question is now one of total unfitness and consequent exclusion. In the preceding and hypothetical statement, our Lord had declared how even a comparatively small antagonism to the righteousness of the law should inevitably lower one's position in respect to the kingdom. And now, vindicating this stringency, as well as exemplifying and confirming it, he points to the mistaken and defective standard prevalent among the more conspicuous religionists of the time as utterly incompatible with any place whatever in the kingdom. The scribes are joined with the Pharisees in upholding the righteousness in question the one as representatives of its defective teaching, the other as examples of its inadequate doing. The scribes understood and taught superficially, adhering to the mere letter of requirement, and hence unduly magnifying the little, relatively undervaluing or neglecting the great. The Pharisees in like manner practiced superficially, intent mainly on the proprieties of outward observance, doing the works of the law only insofar as they seemed to be expressly enjoined, and doing them without love, without life, hence leaving its greater things in reality undone. A righteousness of this description fell altogether below what Jesus, as the head of the new dispensation, would require of his followers— Below also, it is implied, what was taught in the law and the prophets, for while he could place himself in perfect accord with the one, he entirely repudiated any connection with the other. The kingdom, as to the righteousness recognized and expected in it, was to rise on the foundation of the law and the prophets." but for anyone to stand on the platform of the scribes and Pharisees was to belong to an essentially different sphere. Now, two conclusions seem plainly to flow from this part of our Lord's teaching. One is that he must have had chiefly in view the moral elements of the old economy or the righteousness expressed in its enactments. I do not say simply the Ten Commandments, for though these always occupied the foremost place in discourses on the law, did so also here, as appears from the examples presently referred to by our Lord, yet one can scarcely think of them when a least is spoken of, as they one and all belonged to the fundamental statutes of the kingdom. Yet, as it is of the law, in connection with and subservient to righteousness, that our Lord speaks, Primary respect must be had to the Decalogue, and in so far as matters of a ceremonial and judicial nature were included, to these only as designed to inculcate and enforce the principles of holy living, that is not as mere outward forms or civil regulations, but as the means and the measure of practical godliness, for otherwise. Our Lord's teaching here would be at variance with what he taught elsewhere and with the truth of things. What he said, for example, on the subject of defilement, that this does not depend upon corporeal conditions and questions of food, but simply on the state of the heart and the issues which proceed from it, formally considered, was undoubtedly an infringing upon the lesser things of the law. But not so really for it was merely a penetrating through the shell into the kernel and in direct terms pressing upon the conscience the lessons intended to be conveyed by the law's carnal ordinances. If the letter fell away, it was only that the spirit might become more clear and prominent. And so in regard to all the ritual observances and factitious distinctions associated with the religion of the Old Covenant, While an entire change was hinted at by our Lord, and in his name was afterwards introduced, the commands imposing them were by no means dishonored, since the righteousness, for the sake of which these commands were given, was still cared for, and even more thoroughly secured than it could be by them. Rightly viewed, the change was more properly a fulfilling than an abrogating an abrogating, indeed formally, yet a fulfilling or establishing in reality. Another conclusion, which evidently flows from the statements made by our Lord respecting his own relation and that of his kingdom to the law and the prophets, is that the distinctions which he proceeds to draw in the Sermon on the Mount between what had been said in earlier times on several points of moral and religious duty And what he now said must have respect, not to the teaching, strictly speaking, of the law and the prophets, but to the views currently entertained of that teaching or the false maxims founded on it. After so solemnly asserting his entire harmony with the law and the prophets and his dependence on them, it would manifestly have been to lay himself open to the charge of inconsistency. And actually, to shift the ground which he professedly occupied in regard to them, if now he should go on to declare that, in respect to the great landmarks of moral and religious duty, they said one thing, and he said another. This is utterly incredible. And we must assume that in every instance where a precept of the law is quoted among the things said in former times, even though no improper addition is coupled with it, as at verses 27 and 33, there still was an unwarrantable or quite inadequate view commonly taken of them against which our Lord directs his authoritative deliverance that he might point the way to the proper height of spiritual attainment. This view, which the very nature of the case may be said to demand, is also confirmed by the formula with which the sayings in question are introduced. Ye have heard that it was said to them of old time, tois archaiois, to the ancients. It is a very general mode of expression, not such as we should have expected, if only the deliverances of Scripture were referred to, or the persons who at first hand received them from the messengers of heaven. These were the honored fathers of the covenant people, not the ancients merely, who at some indefinite period in the past had heard and thought after some particular manner. Hence, while they all turn on certain precepts of the law, these, in two or three of the cases, are expressly coupled with later additions, indicative of the superficial view that was taken of them, and throughout all the cases adduced, it is evident from our Lord's mode of handling them, that it is not the law per se that is under consideration, but the law as understood and expounded according to the frigid style of rabbinical interpretation. By persons who looked no further than its form of sound words, who thought that to kill had to do with nothing but actual murder, and that a neighbor could be only one dwelling in good fellowship beside us, who in short turned the law of God's righteousness, which, like its divine author, must be pervasively spiritual, into a mere political code or ecclesiastical rubric. It is of the law, as thus unduly curtailed, evacuated of its proper meaning, treated by the scribes or lettermen, grammates, as itself but a letter, gramma, that Christ speaks, and, setting his profound and far-reaching view in opposition to theirs, proclaims, But I say unto you. Never on any occasion did Jesus place himself in such antagonism to Moses, And least of all could he do so here, immediately after having so emphatically repudiated the notion that he had come to nullify the law and the prophets, or to cancel men's obligation to any part of the righteousness they inculcated. It is to free this righteousness from the restrictive bonds that had been laid upon it, and bring it out in its proper breadth and fullness that our Lord's expositions are directed. And as if to guard against any wrong impressions being produced by what he now said, to show that his views of righteousness were in strict agreement with what is written in the law and the prophets, and that the germ of all was already there, he distinctly connected with them, at a subsequent part of his discourse, his own enunciation of the law of brotherly love, in what has been called its finest form, whatsoever ye would that men should do to you, do ye even so to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Matthew 7 verse 12. At the same time, there is nothing in all this to prevent us from believing, as indeed it is next to impossible for any one to avoid feeling, that an advance was made by our Lord in his own wonderful exposition of the law, if only that advance is confined to the clearer light which is thrown on the meaning of its precepts and the higher form which is given to their expression. The Decalogue itself and the legislation growing out of it were in their form adapted to a provisional state of things, they had to serve the end of a disciplinary institution, and, as such, had to assume more both of an external and a negative character than could be regarded as ideally or absolutely the best. And it was only what might have been expected in the progress of things, when that which is perfect was come, that while the law and its great principles of moral obligation and its binding power upon the conscience remained— These should have had an exhibition given to them somewhat corresponding to the noonday period of the church's history and the sun-like freedom of her spiritual standing. Accordingly, our Lord does, in the Sermon on the Mount and in other parts of his teaching, bring out in a manner never heretofore done the spirituality of the law of God, shows how just from being the revelation of his will who is himself a spirit, and as such, necessarily, has a predominant respect to spiritual states and acts, it reaches in all its precepts to the thoughts and intents of the heart, and only meets with the obedience it demands when a pure, generous, self-sacrificing love regulates men's desires and feelings, as well as their words and actions." Hence, things pertaining to the inner man have here relatively a larger place than of old, and, as a natural sequel, there is more of the positive, less of the negative in form. The mind is turned considerably more upon the good that should be done, and less upon the evil to be shunned. It is still but a difference in degree, and is often grossly exaggerated by those who have a particular theory of the life of Christ to make out, as by the author of Eke Homo, who represents the morality enjoined in the Pentateuch as adapted only to half-savage tribes of the desert, the morality even of Isaiah and the prophets as, quote, narrow Antiquated and insufficient for the needs of men in the gospel age, while in the teaching of Christ all becomes changed from a restraint to a motive. Those who listened to it passed from a region of passive into a region of active morality. The old legal formula began, Thou shalt not, the new begins with, Thou shalt, etc. That this style of representation and its comparative estimate of the new and the old goes to excess, it would not be difficult to show. But the mere circumstance that Mr. J.S. Mill charges the expounders of Christian morality with presenting an ideal essentially defective because, quote, negative rather than positive, passive rather than active, innocence rather than nobleness, Abstinence from evil rather than energetic pursuit of good end quote, is itself a proof that elements of this description cannot be wanting in the Christian system. In truth, in the New Testament as well as in the Old, the prohibitory is perpetually alternating with the hortatory, the shall not with the shall. Even in the Sermon on the Mount, the one is nearly of as frequent occurrence as the other, and must be so in every revelation of spiritual obligation and moral duty that is suited to men with corrupt natures and compassed about with manifold temptations. It must lay a restraint upon their inclinations to evil, as well as direct and stimulate their efforts to what is good. And the difference between the discourses of Christ and the earlier scriptures on this and the other point now under consideration cannot be justly exhibited as more than a relative one, adapted to a more advanced period of the divine dispensations. It is such, however, that no discerning mind can fail to perceive it and when taken in connection with the altogether peculiar illustrations given of it in the facts of gospel history, places the Christian on a much higher elevation than that possessed by ancient Israel as to a clear and comprehensive acquaintance with the obligations of moral duty. In perfect accordance with the views respecting the moral law exhibited in the Sermon on the Mount, And, widely different from what he said of the ceremonial institutions, was the action of our Lord in regard to the sabbatism enjoined in the fourth command of the Decalogue. He gives no hint whatever of its coming abolition, but, on the contrary, recognized its divine ordination and merely sought to establish a more wholesome and rational observance of it than was dreamt of or admitted by the slaves of the letter. On a variety of occasions he wrought cures on the Sabbath day, so often, indeed, that the action must have been taken on purpose to convey what he deemed salutary and needful instruction for the time. And on one occasion he allowed his disciples to satisfy their hunger by plucking the ears of corn as they passed through a field. His watchful adversaries were not slow in marking this procedure, and charged our Lord with profaning the sacred rest of the Sabbath. How does he meet their reproaches? Not by quarreling with the divine command or seeking to relax its obligation, but by explaining its true purport and design, as never meant to interfere with such actions as he performed or sanctioned. In proof of this, he chiefly appeals to precedents and practices which his adversaries themselves could not but allow if their minds had been open to conviction, such as David being permitted in a time of extremity to eat the showbread or themselves rescuing a sheep when it had fallen into a pit on the Sabbath, things necessary to the preservation and support of life, or things again of a sacred nature, such as circumcising children on the legal day, though it might happen to be a Sabbath, doing the work at the temple connected with the appointed service, which in some respects was greater on the seventh than the other days of the week, yea, at times involved all the labor connected with the slaying and roasting of the Paschal Lamb for tens of thousands of people. With such things the parties in question were quite familiar, and they should have understood from them that the prescribed rest of the Sabbath was to be taken, not in an absolute, but in a relative sense, not as simply, and in every case, cessation from work, irrespective of the ends for which it might be done, but cessation from ordinary or servile work, in order that things of higher moment, things touching on the most important interests of men, might be cared for. Its sacred repose, therefore, must give way to the necessary demands of life— even of irrational life and to whatever is required to bring relief from actual distress and trouble. It must give way also to that kind of work which is more peculiarly connected with the service of God and with men's restored fellowship with the life and blessedness of heaven. For to promote this was the more special design of the sabbatical appointment. So, plainly, Existing facts showed even in Old Testament times, though the Pharisees and their zeal for an abstract and imperious legalism missed the proper reading of them. Jesus grasped, as usual, the real spirit of the institution. For we are to remember he is explaining the law of the Sabbath as it then stood, not superseding it by another he would have them to understand that, as it is not the simple abstraction of a man's property, which may in certain circumstances be done lawfully, and for his own temporal good, that constitutes a violation of the Eighth Commandment, but a selfish and covetous appropriation of it by fraud or violence. So, in regard to the fourth... The prohibition of work had respect only to what was at variance with its holy and beneficent designs. The Sabbath was made for man, with a wise and gracious adaptation to the requirements of his complex nature, as apt to be wearied with the toils and in his spirit dragged downward by the cares of life, not man for the Sabbath, as if it were an absolute and independent authority that must hold its own, however hardly in doing so it might bear on the wants and interests of those placed under its control. It has an aim, a high moral aim, for the real well-being of mankind, and by a conscientious regard to this must everything in regard to its outward observance be ruled. Such is the view given by our Lord on the law of the Sabbath, speaking as from the ground of law, and doing the part merely of a correct expounder of its meaning. But a thought is introduced and variously expressed, as from his own higher elevation, in harmony with the spiritual aspect of the subject he had presented, and pointing to still further developments of it. The temple, he had said, has claims of service which it was no proper desecration of the Sabbath, but the reverse, to satisfy. And a greater than the temple was there. Quote, The temple yields to Christ, the Sabbath yields to the temple, therefore the Sabbath yields to Christ. End quote. So the sentiment is syllogistically expressed by Bengal. But yields, it must be observed in both cases alike, only for the performance of works not antagonistic but homogeneous to its nature. Or, as it is again put, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Made as the Sabbath was for man, there necessarily belongs to man, within certain limits, a regulating power in respect to its observance, so as to render it more effectually subservient to its proper ends. But this power is supremely resident in him who is the Son of Man, in whom humanity attains to its true ideal of goodness, whose will is in all things coincident with the will of God, and who, like the Father, works even while he rests. He is Lord of the Sabbath, and as such has a right to order everything concerning it, so as to make it, in the fullest sense, a day of blessing for man. A right, therefore, if he should see fit, to transfer its observance from the last day of the week to the first, that it might be associated with the consummation of his redemptive work, and to make it in accordance with the impulsive life and energy thereby brought in, more than in the past, a day of active and hallowed employment for the good of men. So much was certainly implied in the claim of our Lord in reference to the Sabbath. But as regards the existence of such a day, its stated place in the ever-recurring weekly cycle, which in its origin was coeval with the beginning of the world, which as a law was inscribed among the fundamental precepts of the Decalogue, which renders it on the one side a memorial of the paradise that has been lost, and on the other a pledge of the paradise to be restored. In this respect, nothing of a reactionary nature fell from our Lord nor was any principle advanced which can justly be said to point in such a direction. The same Spirit substantially discovers itself in the other occasional references made by our Lord to the moral law of the Old Covenant, as in those already noticed. That is, there appears in them the same profound regard to the authoritative teaching of the law coupled with an insight into its depth and spirituality of meaning, which was little apprehended by the superficial teachers and formalists of the time. Such, for example, was the character of our Lord's reference to the fifth command of the Decalogue, when, replying to the charge of the Pharisees against his disciples for disregarding the tradition of the elders about washing before meat, He retorted on them the greatly more serious charge of making void the law of God by their traditions, teaching that it was a higher duty for a son to devote his substance as an offering to God than to apply it to the support of his parents, thereby virtually dishonoring those whom God had commanded him as a primary duty to honor." The love and reverence due to parents was thus declared to be more than burnt offering, and to have been so determined in the teaching of the law itself. The right principle of obedience was also brought out, but with a more general application, and the absolute perfection of the law announced, as given in one of its summaries in the Old Testament, when, near the close of his ministry, And in answer to a question by one of the better scribes, Jesus said, The first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. This is the first commandment. And the second is like, namely this, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Not only did our Lord affirm that on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets, but that there is none other commandment greater than these, evidently meaning that in them was comprised all moral obligation. And when the scribe assented to what was said, and added that to exercise such love was more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices, Christ expressed his concurrence, and even pronounced the person who had attained to such knowledge not far from the kingdom of God. So, too, on another and earlier occasion, when the rich young ruler came running to him with the question, what good thing should he do that he might inherit eternal life? And on still another, when a certain lawyer stood up and asked, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? On both occasions alike, as the question was respecting things to be done, or righteousness to be attained, with the view of grounding a title thereon to eternal life, Christ pointed the inquirers to the written law of God. In the one case, more particularly to the precepts of the Decalogue, in the other, to the two great comprehensive precepts of supreme love to God and brotherly love to man. And, in connection with each, affirmed that, if the commands were fulfilled, life in the highest sense, eternal life, would certainly be inherited. In other words, by fulfilling those commands, there would be that conformity to the pattern of divine goodness, on which, from the first, all right to the possession of life in God's kingdom has been suspended." At the same time, our Lord took occasion to show, in both the cases, how far his inquirers were themselves from having reached this ideal excellence, or even from distinctly apprehending what was actually included in the attainment. This surely is enough, for touching, as these declarations do, on the great essentials of religion and morality— They must be understood in their plainest import, and anything like subtle ingenuity in dealing with them, or specious theorizings, would be entirely out of place. Manifestly, the revelation of law in the Old Testament was, in our Lord's view, comprehensive of all righteousness— While still, in respect to form, it partook of the imperfection of the times and of the provisional economy with which it was more immediately connected. And for bringing clearly out the measure and extent of the obligations involved in it, we owe much, who can say how much, to the divine insight of Christ, and the truly celestial light reflected on it by his matchless teaching and spotless example. In that respect, our Lord might, with fullest propriety, say, A new commandment I give unto you, that ye may love one another, as I have loved you, that ye may also so love one another. New, however not in regard to the command of love taken by itself, nor in regard to the degree of love, as if one were required now to love others, not merely as oneself, but above oneself. No, but new simply with reference to the peerless manifestation of love given in his own person, and the motive thence arising, altogether peculiar in its force and efficacy, for his people to strive after conformity to his example. This indeed is the highest glory that can here be claimed for Jesus, and to contend with some, under the plea of glorifying his messiahship, that he must have signalized his appearance on earth by the introduction of an essentially new and higher morality, were in effect to dishonor him for it would break at a vital point the continuity of the divine dispensations and stamp the revelation of law, which, at an earlier period of his own mediatorial agency, had in reality come forth from himself as in its very nature faulty, wanting something which it would have had as a reflection of the character of God and a rule of life for those who, as members of his kingdom, were called to love and honor him. Number two. We turn now from what Christ taught to what he did. And here, still more than in regard to his prophetical agency, he had a mission peculiarly his own to fulfill for the good of men, yet not the less one which was defined beforehand and in a manner ruled by the prescriptions of law. For the work of Christ as the Redeemer neither was nor could be anything else than the triumph of righteousness for man over man's sin. And accordingly, in the intimations that had gone before concerning him, this characteristic, as formerly noticed, was made peculiarly prominent. He was to be girt about with righteousness, was to be known as the Lord's righteous servant his elect one, in whom his soul should delight, so that he might be called the Lord our righteousness, as well as the Lord our salvation, since in him all that believed should be justified or made righteous and should glory. There have been those who questioned whether the reality corresponded with these predictions or with the claims actually put forth in behalf of Jesus of Nazareth, but nothing has ever been alleged in support of such insinuations except what has been found in mistaken ideas of his mission or wrong interpretations put on certain actions of his life. Certainly his enemies in the days of his flesh, who sought most diligently for grounds of moral accusation against him, failed to discover them. He himself boldly threw out before them the challenge Which of you convinceth me of sin? The prince of this world, he again said, the great patron and representative of sin, cometh and hath nothing in me. Higher still, he said to the father, I have glorified thee on earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. No indication, whatever, of the slightest failure or shortcoming. And this assertion of faultless excellence was re-echoed on the Father's side. In the word, once and again heard from heaven, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. It was an altogether strange phenomenon in the world's history. Quote, What an impression, Dorner justly asks, must have been made upon the disciples by Jesus, whose spirit was full of peace and of an undisturbed serenity, who never showed the slightest trace of having worked himself into this peaceful state through hard effort and conflict with sin. There was a man in whom appeared no sign of repentance or of disquietude in regard to himself, a man without solicitude for his soul's salvation, for he is already possessed of eternal life. He lives as in heaven. No prayer is heard from him for sin of his own, nor is any aversion shown to enter into the company of publicans and sinners. In the most trying moments of his life, it becomes manifest that he is without consciousness of sin. This is an unquestionable fact of history, whatever explanation may be given of it. For that he set before him as his life purpose the deliverance and reconciliation of the world, that for the execution of this purpose he knew himself to be committed to suffer, even to the cross, and that he actually expired in the consciousness of having at once executed the purpose and maintained undisturbed his fellowship with God. This no more admits of denial— than that it would have been an utterly foolish and absurd idea to have thought of bringing in redemption for others if he had been himself conscious of needing redemption. Jesus was conscious of no sin, just because he was no sinner. He was, though complete man, like God in sinless perfection, and, though not like God, incapable of being tempted, nor perfected from his birth, and so not in that sense holy, yet holy in the sense of preserving an innate purity and corruptness, and through a quite normal development, in which the idea of a pure humanity comes at length to realization, and prevents the design of the world from remaining unaccomplished. The impression made by him is that of the free the true Son of Man, needing no new birth, but by nature the new-born man, and no remedial applications, but himself consciously possessing the power fitted to render him the physician of diseased humanity. End quote. Could such an one really be subject to the law? Was he not rather above it? so some have been disposed to maintain with the avowed design of magnifying the name of Jesus. It has seemed to them as if they were claiming for him a higher honor when they represented him as living above law, precisely as others have sought to do with respect to his teaching above law. But it is a kind of honor incompatible with the actual position and calling of Jesus. To have so lived would have been to place himself beyond the sphere which properly belongs to humanity. He could no longer have been the representative of the morality which we are bound to cultivate. His standing in relation to spiritual excellence had been something exceptional, arbitrary. And wherever this enters, it is not a higher elevation that is reached, but rather a descent that is made... The sentimental, or expedient, then takes the place of the absolutely righteous and good. To be the Lord of the law, and yet in all things subject to the law's demands, moving within the bounds of law, yet finding them to be no restraint, consenting to everything the law required as in itself altogether right, and of a free and ready mind doing it as a son in the father's house, so that it might as well be said the law lived in him as that he lived in the law. This is the highest glory, which could be won in righteousness by the man Christ Jesus, and it is the glory which is ascribed to him in Scripture. Never do we find him there asserting for himself as a right, or claiming as a privilege a release from ordinary obligations. Never was that which is dutiful and good for others viewed as otherwise for him or as bearing less directly on his responsibilities and in so far as the work he had to do was peculiar so much the more remarkable was the spirit of surrender with which he yielded himself to the authority that lay upon him Of himself he declared that he was loved of the Father, because he kept the Father's commandments. And it is said of him, in a word which covers the whole of his earthly career, he was made of a woman made under the law, therefore bound to a lifelong subjection to its requirements, bearing throughout the form of a servant, but bearing it with the heart of a son, It was, consequently, not his burden, but his meat to do the will of his father and to finish his work. And the spirit in which he entered on and ever prosecuted his vicarious service was that expressed in the language long before prepared for him, Lo, I come, in the volume of the book it is written of me, I delight to do thy will, O my God, yea, thy law is within my heart. And if at other times, so especially when his work of obedience was reaching its culmination, and he was ready to perfect himself through the sacrifice of the cross. The necessity of this great act, and the place it was to hold in his mediatorial agency, had been from the first foreseen by him. He knew, so he declared near the commencement of his ministry, that he must be lifted up for the salvation of the world. When the awful crisis approached, though he had power either to retain or to lay down his life, the things which had been written concerning it, he said, must be accomplished, that he should be numbered with the transgressors. And the humble, earnest entreaty, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will but thine be done, only showed how nature recoiled from the terribleness, yet meekly bowed to the necessity of the doom. For here especially lay the ground of all that he was to secure of good for his people. Here the work of reconciliation between sinful men and their offended God must be once for all accomplished, And it was accomplished, by his being made sin for them who knew no sin, that they might be made the righteousness of God in him. Or, as it is again put, by redeeming them from the curse of the law, by being himself made a curse for them. It is impossible here to do more than very briefly glance at this all-important subject and the less needful, as it was so fully treated by the esteemed friend who immediately preceded me in this lectureship. But surely, if there be anything in the record of our Lord's work upon earth, in which more than another the language employed concerning it should be taken in its simplest meaning, it must be in what is said of the very heart of his undertaking, that on which everything might be said to turn for... The fulfillment of promise and the exhibition of divine faithfulness and truth. And there can be no doubt that the representations just noticed and others of a like description concerning the death of Christ do, in their natural sense, carry a legal aspect. They bear respect to the demands of law, or the justice of which law is the expression. They declare that, to meet those demands in behalf of sinners, Christ bore a judicial death, a death which, while all undeserved on the part of him who suffered, must be regarded as the merited judgment of heaven on human guilt. To be made a curse, that he might redeem men from the curse of the law, can have no other meaning than to endure the penalty which as transgressors of law they had incurred in order that they might escape. Nor can the exchange indicated in the words, He was made sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him, be justly understood to import less than that he, the righteous one, took the place of sinners in suffering, that they might take his place in favor and blessing and the stern necessity for the transaction, a necessity which even the resources of infinite wisdom, at the earnest cry of Jesus, found it impossible to evade, on what could it rest but the bosom of law, whose violated claims called for satisfaction. Not that God delights in blood, but that the paramount interests of truth and righteousness must be upheld, even though blood unspeakably precious may have to be shed in their vindication. There are many who cannot brook the idea of these legal claims and awful securities for the establishment of law and right in the government of God. The sacrifice on the cross has no attraction for them when viewed in such an aspect. And the utmost ingenuity has been plied in recent times more particularly to accept the language of Scripture regarding it and yet eliminate the element which alone gives it value or consistence. Thus, with one class, the idea of sacrifice in this connection is identified with self-denial, with the entire surrender of the whole spirit and body to God, bearing with meek and uncomplaining patience the impious rage of men, because it was the will of the Father he should do so, when otherwise he might have met it with counter-violence or used his supernatural power to save himself from the humiliating ordeal. What, however, is gained by such a mode of representation? It gets rid, indeed, of what is called a religion of blood, but only to substitute for it a morality of blood. And a morality of blood grounded, for aught that we can see, upon no imperative necessity, nor in its own nature differing from what has been exhibited by some of Christ's more illustrious disciples. Such a view has not even a formal resemblance to the truth as presented in Scripture. It does not come within sight of the idea of vicarious sin-bearing or atonement in any intelligible sense of the terms. Nor is the matter much improved by laying stress, with some, on the greatness of the opposition which the existing state of the world rendered it needful for him to encounter, as when it is said, quote, He came into collision with the world's evil, and bore the penalty of that daring he bore suffering to free us from what is worse than suffering, sin, temporal death to save us from death everlasting, End quote. Robertson, nor again with others, by viewing it in a merely subjective light and finding the work to consist in a kind of sympathetic assumption of our guilt entering in spirit into the Father's judgment upon it, and feeling and confessing for it the sorrow and repentance it is fitted to awaken in a perfectly holy soul. Campbell Or, as others prefer putting it, by the manifestation of a burdened love, of the moral suffering of God for men's sins and miseries, a divine self-sacrificing love to overmaster sin and conquer the human heart, Bushnell, Young, etc. In all such representations, which are substantially one, though somewhat different in form, there is merely an accommodation of scripture language to a type of doctrine that is essentially at variance with it. For when expressed in unambiguous terms, what does it amount to but this? That Christ, in his views of sin and righteousness, in the virtue of his life, and the sacrifice of his death, is the beau ideal of humanity, our great pattern and example, the purest reflection of the Father's love and goodness. But that is all. If we catch the spirit of his antipathy to sin and devotion to righteousness, we share with him in his glory. We link ourselves to the divine humanity which has manifested itself in him. Quote, God views us favorably as partaking of that holy, perfect, and divine thing which was once exhibited on earth. But there is no judicial procedure, no legal penalty borne by the Savior and for his sake remitted to the guilty. No direct acceptance for them through the blood of the atonement. And what comfort were such a gospel to the conscience-stricken sinner? It is but a disguised legalism. For such a perfect exhibition of goodness in Christ, feeling, doing, suffering with perfect conformity to the mind of God, what is it, considered by itself, but the law in a concrete and embodied form. Therefore, the sinner's virtual condemnation. The clear mirror in which the more steadfastly he looks, the more he must see how far he has gone from the righteousness and life of God. And if not imputed to him, till he is conscious of having imbibed its spirit, where shall be his security against the agitations of fear, or even the agonies of despair. In the great conflict of life, in the grand struggle which is proceeding in our own bosoms and the world around us, between sin and righteousness, the consciousness of guilt and the desire of salvation, it is not in such a mystified, impalpable gospel as those fine-spun theories present to us, that any effective aid is to be found. We must have a solid foundation for our feet to stand on, a sure and living ground for our confidence before God. And this we can find only in the old church view of the sufferings and death of Christ as a satisfaction to God's justice for the offense done by our sin to his violated law. Satisfaction. I say emphatically, to God's justice. Which some, even evangelical writers, seem disposed to stumble at. They would say satisfaction to God's honor indeed, but by no means to God's justice. What then, I would ask, is God's honor apart from God's justice? His honor can be nothing but the reflex, action, or display of his moral attributes— And in the exercise of these attributes, the fundamental and controlling element is justice. Every one of them is conditioned. Love itself is conditioned by the demands of justice, and to provide scope for the operation of love in justifying the ungodly consistently with those demands is the very ground and reason of the atonement. Its ground and reason primarily in the mind of God, and because there, then also in its living image, the human conscience, which instinctively regards punishment as, quote, the recoil of the eternal law of right against the transgressor, end quote, and cannot attain to solid peace but through a medium of valid expiation. So much so, indeed, that wherever the true expiation is unknown, or but partially understood, it ever goes about to provide expiations of its own. Thus has the law been established, most signally established, by that very feature of the gospel, which specially distinguished it from the law, its display of the redeeming love of God in Christ, Quote, just law indeed, to use the words of Milton, just law indeed, but more exceeding love, for we by rightful doom remedy less, were lost in death, till he that dwelt alone, high-throned in secret bliss, for us frail dust, emptied his glory even to nakedness, and that great covenant which we still transgress, entirely satisfied and the full wrath beside a vengeful justice bore for our excess. Yes, hold fast by this broadly marked distinction, yet mutual interconnection between the law and the gospel. Contemplate the law, or the justice which it reveals and demands, as finding satisfaction in the atoning work of Christ, And this work, again, by reason of that very satisfaction, securing an eternal reign of peace and blessing in the kingdom of God. And then, perhaps, you will not be indisposed to say of law, as thus magnified and in turn magnifying and blessing, with one of the profoundest of our old divines, that, her seat is in the bosom of God, her voice the harmony of the world. All things in heaven and earth do her homage, the very least as feeling her care, and the greatest as not exempted from her power. Both angels and men and creatures, of what condition soever, though each in different sort and manner, yet all with uniform consent, admiring her as the mother of peace and joy. This audio recording was read by Michael Ives. I hope you found it enlightening and edifying. Visit westportexperiment.com for more audio resources and where I write about parish missions, the care of souls, and all things reformed.